Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Would you guys bow your heads with me once more before we dive into God's word? Uh, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the kindness that you give us in your word. Uh, and what, is, uh, what your word is targeted at, as even Marshall just prayed, is not simply our intellect, but our heart, where what we think and what we love meet together. So Lord, in our text today, which is distinctly after our desires and our affections and our wants and our longings, we pray that Christ's love sinks deeply into our hearts and it shapes the love we have for all other things. Um, we pray all of this in your name. Amen. It was too good to be true. When you guys hear that phrase, you know how the story is going to end before you even have to hear the ending of it. And I remember when I was in high school, I went through a muscle car phase, and those who know me know that I could barely change my own oil uh, as is right now. But back then, I did all the things you needed to do to look like a guy who likes hot rod cars. I had subscriptions to magazines. I would hang out with my friends who were restoring old classic cars. And my dream car was a 1970 Chevy Nova SS. It's what I wanted. It's what I thought was cool. It was attractive. And uh, so I, what I did back then is you look at the newspaper classifieds and you see what's available in your area. When you go to grocery stores, you pick up those auto trader magazines and you examine them all over and I'd go to Coeur d'Alene and I'd look there and then finally I found something. I found a 1986 Chevy Nova for $2,200 for sale in Spokane. And so uh, I drove over there to look at it and for those of you who don't know, there have been some wonderful partnerships in automotive history. You might think of Ford Motorsports partnering with Shelby Motorsports for the Shelby Mustang. Well, in 1985, Chevy made a partnership with Toyota. And little did I know that the 1986 Chevy Nova was a 1986 Toyota Corolla with the Chevy emblem on it. It was too good to be true. It was not at all what I expected. And we live in a world which promises something good, something life-changing, something irresistible at every corner, on every screen, and in every ad. But most of us, when we consider what we are given, know we have a distinct uh, taste of disappointment behind many of our consumeristic tendencies. And in some of us, this reality produces a grief. And we begin to despair that we could ever find, purchase, or have what is the good life in our world. And then in others, it creates this insatiable gluttony where we are driven by the demand to eat and to eat and to eat and to have in hopes that one day we might actually find our fill. Today in Proverbs chapter 23, Solomon is speaking about these desires and disappointments. He's going to show us that just like a 1986 Chevy Nova, appearances aren't always what they seem. 
But amidst what might seem, for those of you who listened to what Marshall already read for us and how this intro is going, there's more than Solomon's dream dashing uh, at play today in our text. There is a hope behind it, and that is that instead of searching to find wealth and satisfaction by our own understanding, we might seek to find satisfaction through the understanding of God's wisdom in the gospel. And to show us this, Solomon is going to give us, as you already heard, two illustrations of a dinner table. And sandwiched between these two illustrations is the main point he's going to make with us today. And that is this. This is going to be our main point. Is that seeing the deceptive riches of the world allows us to see the true riches of the gospel. Seeing the deceptive riches of the world is what allows us to see the true riches of the gospel. We're going to see this in uh, three ways. If you have your Bibles and you haven't yet opened them to Proverbs chapter 23, you could actually see our three sections where in verses 1 and 2, we're going to see that unchecked desire will deceive you. And then in verses uh, uh, 4 through 5, we're going to see that greedy eyes will frustrate you. And lastly, in verses seven through eight, we will, or six through eight, excuse me, we will see that selfish hearts will abandon you. As cheery as all those things might seem for you guys on a summer morning, there is good news in here, and that is that we are going to see a king's table which truly satisfies a gift that comes down from heaven and a ruler who gives us his heart. I'm gonna read for us our text once more and then we're gonna dive into our first point. So this is the word of the Lord from Proverbs 23. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, observe carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat if you are given to appetite. Do not desire his delicacies for they are deceptive food. Do not toil to acquire wealth. Be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings flying like an eagle toward heaven. Do not eat the bread of a a man who is stingy nor desire his delicacies. For he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsel that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. So in the first couple of verses today, we see Solomon's first illustration in our first point today, and that is that unchecked desire will deceive you. And he sets this up by creating for us, inviting us to this hypothetical table, this feast given to us by a ruler. And if you were with us last week, it's not unconnected with what we saw last week. Look at the verse right before this. Just look up on your page. Proverbs 22, verse 29. Do you see a man skillful in his work? He will stand before kings. He will not stand before obscure men. And so after Solomon is getting after a biblical view of work and relying on God for your provision, he now says, As you experience success to whatever that looks like in the world, you might be placed in a circumstance like this where the opportunities of success avail themselves to you. I've realized as I've gotten older that my biggest problem is not what I can't afford, but what I can. Our world makes it possible for people who don't have much to purchase as if we have much. With loans and zero interest financing and pay-as-you-go plans, it is very possible for you to walk to the newest car lot, for you to walk into your favorite big box store and walk out with exactly what you want. The table is before you. But Solomon has three cautions for you when you consider this unchecked desire. You can see that in verses one and two. He says, first, observe carefully what is before you. 
Second, if you look at what is before you and your tummy begins to rumble and your mouth begins to water in want, then put a knife to your throat. And third, in case you didn't get the point, that's a pun, uh, there in verse two, we see do not desire the delicacies of the ruler's table. Why? Well, he goes on to tell us, because they are deceptive food in verse three. Now, what does it mean that the food is deceptive? Because he's talking about some pretty drastic things, putting knife blades to one's throat, metaphorically. And so if we don't understand what the danger of deceptive food is, we're not gonna be driven to the extreme lengths that Solomon is talking about here. And I think there's two ways we could look at this hypothetical situation Solomon presents and find deceptive food. And the first is that perhaps the ruler who is putting on this feast is putting on this feast as a sort of test, perhaps like Joseph tested his brothers when they came to him in Egypt. Thomas Edison did something similarly when he would interview research assistants. He would give each of the applicants a bowl of soup. And if they put salt and pepper on the soup without tasting it, he would dismiss them right away. Why is that? Because he knew the danger of assumption in an innovative industry. If they thought the food needed something before they ever tasted it, then that kind of assumption would cripple the critical thinking he wanted them to have when it came to working in a laboratory. And so perhaps the individual here who finally gets to the table of the king, he's worked hard, he's strived to reach this level of standing, he gets into the banquet room and he thinks, at last I have everything I have ever wanted. And he finally lets his guard down and he sees all the food and all of the chalupas and he just goes to town. And yet thinking he has reached the end game, the king sees his lack of self-control, sees his gluttony, and realizes this man is unprincipled, unself-controlled, and led by his passions, not by his intellect. And the man is dismissed from service of the king. Or another way to understand the deceptive food here is that you would not understand the motives of the king. You might think that this ruler genuinely wants, you, wants to be with you, to spend time with you, to just grow a deep, rich relationship. But in the end, it might be that his hope is to leverage his bountiful table and all that he has and all the ways he's cared for you for a sort of political or influential favor to win you to a sense of indebtedness where now, you must do what the king asks you to do, fattening you up for his own purposes and impressing you for his own gain. And while it's a bit unclear as to what the heart of the ruler is, Solomon makes it very clear that you, we, us, sitting at this table, ought to be very concerned about our own gluttonous heart when these opportunities present themselves. If you examine what you encounter in most advertisements, I was just thinking about this this morning, you encounter an odd paradox. And that is that advertisements generally remind you and prey off of all of your past purchases which failed to give you satisfaction. They say, look at all you've eaten, all you've consumed, all you've bought, and that didn't work, but this one will. We promise if you buy this, wear this, live here, get this job, sleep with this individual, this will be the last and final time, not like those other failures. It calls you to find something satisfying in a history of being dissatisfied. 
You don't have to be a philosopher to see this. I was actually watching a, a children's show with my kids the other day. And on it, there's this cartoon character, young lady, who is sitting in darkness, scrolling on her phone. And she was encountering all of these promises, which were never satisfied. They seemed unreachable. She saw one friend getting a dream job while she was stuck as a cashier. Another friend getting married as she was alone and single. Another friend on social media won the lottery and their life is vastly superior and she's sitting here making minimum wage. And she saw the feast. The table was set. And all it reminded her of is what she didn't have, but what maybe if she tried hard enough, she should gain. And isn't that what social media is designed to do? To provoke in us a longing for what we wish we had. The effect isn't new. The effect has been around for millennia. But the means of it being tied to our pockets and on our TV screens, it's a new medium. It advertised to your desires. It wants you to see its delicacies and to desire it. And because of that, we keep going back to the table. Even though we've never been satisfied, for some reason, we keep seeing and wanting and thinking and dreaming. We are gluttons for the punishment of our own desire. For some sick reason, we want to want. And we put ourselves in positions where that want is provoked. And it's in the face of this where Solomon calls you to look closely, observe carefully what is before you, and then put a knife to your throat. He's not saying that the food is bad. Instead, he's saying the appetite with which you desire that food, the lack of self-control in your heart, which gives way to lust for these delicacies is a huge problem. And to prevent yourself from this lust, which is insatiable, what are you going to do about it? Well, Solomon metaphorically gets really aggressive. He says, put a knife to your throat. And Jesus himself, the greater Solomon, speaks with similar clarity in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30, when he says this, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members, that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. And so here's this astounding paradigm that we've seen in Solomon, and now we've seen in Jesus, and that is that Jesus is far less concerned with what you have, he's actually more concerned with what you want. You don't have a mistress, but you want to lust. You don't have the food, it's the rulers, but you desire his delicacies. And lust for the things of this world ought to be brought under the self-control of the believer by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I am a big believer, and I want to preface this, I'm a big believer in prayer. You should pray. I'm a big believer in the work of the Holy Spirit laboring inside of us to help us say no to sin and yes to righteousness. But what's interesting in both of these conversations, in Proverbs 23 and in Matthew 5, neither Solomon nor Jesus says, when you are presented with these desires, pray really hard and hope it goes away. Now do that. 
please pray about your desires. But what they say in that moment when that lust is presented is not to passively sit back and wait for something to happen to you. Solomon says, you go full pirate on that thing and you put a knife to your throat to dissuade yourself from desiring it. Jesus says, find the closest hacksaw and whatever is nearest to that sin, chop it off. Paul, in speaking of sexual immorality, says, lace up those Nikes and run from it. Do not be near to it. Get away from these places of temptation. This world offers us the excess of delightful goods and the false promise at a table with comfortable chairs and HD lighting. And if you are not careful to examine the promises behind your wants and desires, then you will constantly be consumed with a gluttony which leads nowhere. So, What does it actually mean for you to put the proverbial knife to your throat? Practically thinking, how do you apply this text to your life? What does it look like to remove yourself from places where you begin to desire delicacies of deceitful food? I've realized that there are some stores I don't go to. There are some aisles I don't walk down. And it's not because those stores or those aisles are just filled with illicit imagery. There are aisles I don't go down in Costco because they have things I never need, but I know when I see them, I will want them. And when I want them because I'm a cheapskate, I'm going to go to my phone in the parking lot and I'm going to Google cheaper options and then the Google gods know I want it and then like everywhere I go for the next millennia, it's like, hey, did you find the heated toilet seat? And all these things are just coming at me and all I wanted was a look. All I wanted was just, I thought I could have the self-control and now my heart and the world is just like, buy it, want it, have it, get it, keep it, love it. So where do we actually curb a consumeristic tendency with effort and with grace in a world that simply wants to sell you empty desire. You see, most of my heart is not driven towards what is overtly sinful, but it's driven to things which master my heart. And so what are we to be concerned about? How do we think this through? Well, Paul gives us another paradigm in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, where he says this, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. The knife that Paul wants you to use in putting it to your throat is the idea of, is it helpful to me? To not be dominated, to not be mastered, he holds up this paradigm of helpfulness. As he puts it as another place in 1 Corinthians, is it helpful for the building up? Is it helpful for the flourishing of the gospel? In that way, what you are dominated by is not the consumeristic desire, but by the primacy of the gospel in everything you purchase and consume. If the only lens through which we view our longings in the world is the question of, is it sinful? then you might, like the Pharisees in Matthew chapter five, find yourself desiring things which don't seem sinful, don't seem wrong on the outside, but are beginning to produce a soul dominated by something which is not Jesus. But if we check our desires 
with what that purchase, what that object, what that relationship, what that job offers us in light of our own walk with Jesus and how we might help others do the same, you're observing it through the lens of biblical wisdom. You're observing it through the lens of freedom. And if such an examination, when you look at this, finds that meal to be lacking in its helpfulness and its utility to the gospel, Solomon says it would be wise for you to guard yourself from it to remove yourself from that temptation, to put up a physical reminder that this is not what you need in your life. And this sounds, if you're new or watching here today, this might seem like every caricature of Christianity you've ever heard of. Here's this joyless group of miserly people, puritanical, who doesn't want to have any sort of excitement or satisfaction in worldly pleasures. But what's interesting is that the opposite of that is true in this text. Solomon is not writing to us so that we would not have joy. He's writing to us so that our joy may abound. He's writing to us so that you may not be frustrated chasing false promises which never actually provide. He's writing because he, not because he doesn't want you to have something, but because he wants you to have something greater. Look at this as we continue next in verses four and five. Do not toil to acquire wealth be discerning enough to desist. When your eyes light on it, it is gone. For suddenly it sprouts wings, flying like an eagle toward heaven. So here we see our second point today. In the face of birds that always get away and eyes that can never see clearly, greedy eyes will frustrate you. Solomon warns us here that if our desire for the food of the world is left unchecked, it will exhaust you. Behind what's translated here in the ESV as toil is the sense, if you're reading in another translation, talks about exhaustion, talks about labor. Behind this is someone driven to pour out their life to pursue something that he says in a little bit will always escape them. And how many times do we read about this in living color before our hearts actually get it? We've seen the CEOs pursuing the bottom line at cost of their own family or mental well-being. We've seen artists so concerned with the fame and the accolades and their work that they are just despairing what gain they have while driving deeper and more twisted inward into trying to find the fame that actually satisfies them. Now, Proverbs isn't saying here that wealth is bad, and this is really important. Because I think it was Tim Keller who said that Proverbs yields its wisdom collectively. Meaning we interpret individual Proverbs in light of all of what Proverbs says. And it's generally true in the book of Proverbs, and we've seen that, that it is the one who is faithful, righteous, the wise man, who God rewards at his own pleasure, at his own discretion with wealth. It is a gift from God himself. And where Solomon in the first example points out the inordinate desire for the food of the rich man, here what he wants to challenge, much like we saw last week, is the relentless effort you would put into something in order to gain what you could never have enough of. Paul speaks of this endless quest in a spiritualized form, talking about the idolaters in Philippians chapter 3, where he says this, Philippians 3.19, their end, that is the idolaters, they, their end is destruction. Their God is in their belly and, their glory, and, their, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. So he's making this contrast between those who worship the invisible God, 
those who worship idols. And at the center of this are these people whose God is their stomach. Think about how your stomach works. We become so hungry. Maybe right now you're already checking your watch. You're wondering when you could get your market on front breakfast burrito, which is only available for another 15 minutes. And you're asking if we could hurry up and you're gonna go there and you're going to purchase it. And then tomorrow you're going to want it again because what goes into our stomach is quickly emptied. We don't need to go into details. What goes into your stomach does not stay there. What they are chasing, what they are trying to fill is something that was built to be emptied and not to stay full. It is a fruitless and frustrating life to be given over to a God of our flesh. And so is the life of those, Solomon says, who desire worldly comforts by worldly means. There's something dangerous here. And we need to be careful because, again, we're not saying things that Solomon's not trying to hold intention himself. There are ways in which wealth and worldly goods and nice beaches are part of God's gift to us. He gave them to us precisely because he wants us to enjoy them. But he wants us to enjoy them as they are, not as he is. That is that we see them not as God, but as God's gift to us. St. Augustine was uh, kind of the poster child for the antithesis of the wise man and the simple man in Proverbs. He was uh, attractive, he was smart, he had wealth, and he spent all of that to pursue his own vanity and glamour. And in his autobiography, Confessions, where kind of like Solomon does in the book of Ecclesiastes, he begins to talk about uh, the ways in which he missed the point. And he talks about this lust he had for things like food. And he was loath, not that he enjoyed them, but that he enjoyed them apart from the God who created them. He thought that it was the food itself that made his tummy feel full and happy and satisfied, not realizing that the only reason food satisfied the human body in that way is because there was a God who made it that way a God who is better than the food, a God who is called to be enjoyed even as we enjoy these comforts. They lift us upward in worship to say, what a God is this to make s'mores ice cream at Sweet Peaks? How good is this God? And to, to, to not realize that it's God that behind, hides behind all of our joys in the encounters of this world is to spend the rest of your life looking backwards at a gift instead of forwards at the giver. It subtly turns us inwards instead of outwards, backwards hoping for warmed up leftovers instead of onward into the kitchen of mercy. In the fantasy football community, they have a phrase called chasing points. And chasing points is when you have an individual who is historically not very productive in their sports, but one week, the stars align and Rudy goes on the field and kills it, scores lots of touchdowns, hits lots of home runs, all the sports ball things that Johnny has no idea about. And you have this tendency, seeing how successful they were, to say, I'm going to start that person next week. But everyone says, don't do it. Why? Well, because of another investment phrase we hear often, past performance doesn't mean future results. 
And without the gospel view of what we enjoy in this life, we always turn backwards thinking that that joy is tied to those circumstances, that flavor, that person, or that experience. And that makes us incredibly paranoid and actually unable to live life forward. Just because it happened once doesn't mean it will happen again repeatedly forever in the same way. That's why Solomon brings, this, brings in this illustration of the bird. You see it, your eyes light on it, you desire it, but as soon as you try to take it, it flies away towards heaven, never to be seen again. And I want you guys to do something tonight, and maybe we'll be able to do it with the smoke. Hopefully we will, but we might not. I want you to go out, specifically you kids. Kids, here's homework for you tonight if your parents let you stay up uh, when it's dark, and, uh, which is like midnight here, so you're bad parents, parenting test. Uh, Go outside, I want you to look up and find the brightest star. I want you to stare at that star. And what you'll notice is while you're staring at that star, you'll see smaller stars around it. And then what I want you to do is I want you to try to look at one of those smaller stars. And what you'll find is that as soon as you try to stare at the smaller star, it seems to go away until you look away again. And then it's there. And then you look back and you can't see it again. And it just so happens that how God made our eyes with rods and cones is that there are some things that are seen almost exclusively through our peripheral vision, through the corners of our eyes. And when we focus on them as the center, we fail to see them again. So are the joys of this world. They are meant to be seen and savored in the corner of our eye with something altogether different at the center And to try and make those lesser lights the center of your life is to spend your life constantly frustrated because it's always there. When you look away, it pops back up. It's like, hey, remember me. Try me this time. Buy the 2.0. Try a longer relationship. And then as soon as we turn to it, it's gone. And we say, where is it? Instead, we place at the center of our eyes the invisible realities of the gospel the invisible hope of Christ, which in no way diminishes the joy and light we take from the corners, but it holds them in right priority to the true light, Jesus Christ. Charles Hodge said this, he says, the world apprehends realities only in the objects before them. The Christian only in invisible things. Therefore, if our judgment looks upon one as the shadow and the other as the substance, we give the shadow of love to the things of earth and the marrow and the substance of the heart to the things of eternity. In other words, he's saying you can enjoy things in this life, but the center of the things we enjoy, the heart of our affection, is the things tied up in the right hand of God in Christ. Things which Paul says in Colossians 3 are things yet to come where Christ is hidden with God, but when Christ appears there, we will be like him in glory. You see, one of the tactics wisdom writers used in this time is they would speak to an issue by not speaking to the issue. In this way, it's like that fight you're having with your spouse. They speak around it, but the goal is to actually point you towards it, to illuminate what is there by pointing out what is absent. 
And that's what Solomon is doing here in this text in pointing out the ways in which the world never satisfies and has nothing to give. Here is the God who provides, the God who makes himself known, the God who didn't fly to heaven but actually came down in the person of Jesus Christ in the form of a servant and sat and waited for us to see him. Here we see a host who gives us not only a table that entices our desires, but a meal which is actually able to satisfy it. And this is seen most clearly in our final point today, where Solomon returns once more to the dinner table. And it's here we see our third point, that selfish hearts will always abandon you. Let's read verses 6 through 8. Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy, nor desire his delicacies. For he is like one who is inwardly calculating. Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. You will vomit up the morsels that you have eaten and waste your pleasant words. So Solomon's first illustration got at the heart of the gluttonous guest. Here we're warned of the heart of the stingy and selfish host. And if we could pause for one second here, we could actually look at a secondary point of application here as it relates to our church and hospitality. Uh, Here we have a Jesus who invited friends and fringe in the gospel to come and eat with him at his table, to extend fellowship to them in hopes of sharing with them the good news of what Jesus was going to do on the cross to restore our problem of dissatisfaction by bringing us into the satisfaction of God, by removing the burden of our sins and cloaking us in his righteousness. What he was gonna do to win us back into fellowship with God, the all-satisfying Father. And therefore, when we look at our church, we want our church to be shaped with the same kind of table hospitality that the Lord himself used. Just as Christ invited us to his table invites us to the Lord's Supper table, so we invite others into our home so that we might love them and care for them as Christ has loved and cared for us. And here we could see two warnings for when we exercise this table fellowship with people. We see a first warning, like the the first host, who has people to his house so that he might impress them with what he has or with his skill to satisfy them. And it's not that we shouldn't use what you have in your home, to care for people, or you should cook poor quality meals, or only put on your best chef hat for when you're on a romantic date with your wife. But the point he's making here is that sometimes our hospitality might not be for the sake of the guest. Sometimes in our hospitality, we might be more concerned with wanting them to see what we have, wanting them to affirm our house, our cooking, our hosting, and our skill. And in this way, it's not about hospitality at all. And we see this continued once more, not only in the host which gives something in order to, uh, to woo the person who's at our house, but we also see here to be wary of a miserly, stingy host. And this is hospitality, which kind of legalistically invites people into your home. And so you say, well, Tyler said I should have people over. I don't really like people. Uh, I don't really like sharing what I have, but I'm going to do it because he said so, and that's what we do. And so you invite them over, and the whole time they're over at your house, you're watching their kids touch your freshly cleaned windows, and you're getting that, like, twitch. And they're, like, opening up. I remember we had a family over once that we'd never met before, and the first thing their kids, kids did, who I've never seen, came and just opened up our fridge and started looking for something to eat. And we begin to count these things. We calculate in our hearts like, goodness gracious, when are they going to stop eating? When are they going to leave? 
When are they going to stop telling these stories? And you become the selfish host who's invited people in, but you have no desire in your heart to host anyone. This is the heart of the stingy host that Solomon paints here. He lets you in. He gives you a table. He puts on a feast with the same delicacies. We see that same word repeated as the rich ruler. And yet the more you eat, the more upset and frustrated and stingy he becomes. Why is that? Well, we can assume when it says it's because he's calculating. It's because he doesn't want to share with you what he himself has. Now the question might be, why in the world would you invite yourself over to this person's house? If this is the stingy man, just avoid them. But the problem here is that Solomon says, outwardly, he's saying, come on in. It's inwardly that he's wrestling with a stingy heart. Initially, we understand this a little more when you understand the context of the culture in Solomon's writing. In the ancient Near East, hospitality was king. And so if someone showed up at your door and asked to eat a meal with you, it was incredibly disrespectful and shameful to turn them away and to say no. And so what is actually assumed in this text is almost this continuation of the greed we see in the first two illustrations. A greedy heart which lacks self-control. It might assume you're inviting yourself over to the house of this host in hopes that your relationship with this person might provide for you some sense of gain. Maybe you don't actually care if you want to know this person or what this person thinks of you, but you're looking for those networking opportunities. This person knows people in my field, and if we have dinner with them, it might advance my standings. Or you might think you've got a good sales pitch for them, and they might be that investment you need to really get the wheels going. Or it might be that you just want to be seen as someone who rubs elbows with the elite or people of influence who are like this person. But in this event, both hearts are selfish. The guest is selfish in forcing himself into the home, not in order to enjoy the relationship, but only to enjoy the fruit of the relationship. And the host is selfish in saying, fine, I have to do this because of customs, and yet my heart is far from you. No one gets what they want. The stingy host isn't interested He's only interested in the appearance of care and keeping his social capital. He's more concerned about what he might lack by the end. Additionally, the guest, if you see, has none of what he hopes for. He gets neither the free meal nor the affirmation he wants. He says his heart will be far from you and you will vomit up the very morsel you ate. He leaves more empty than when he came And when we stop, as verse 1 calls us to, to observe carefully what is set before you, and we actually consider the table and the host that this world offers, we can find contradictions, can't we? We can begin to see the heart of the miserly and stingy host of this world. We can see the world invite people in to show an attempt to care for them, to bathe the experience in love and security, And yet, look at those who leave the table with the world. How are they leaving? What does their life say about the meal they just ate? I had a conversation with a young man once after his parents got a divorce. He was considering carefully his whole experience before him. And he recalled how many times his father had told his mother that he loved her. And yet, at the end... He left her. 
And he sat there, he said, that same dad has told me that same sentence time and time again. How do I know that my dad loves me when he said the same thing but didn't love my mom? What a profound and devastating reflection that points only to the Father in heaven who could say love with a covenant of blood behind it. The world promises us a feast of a lifetime. But are you sober enough like this young man was to actually look and see what is people's experience with that? What is your experience with that? Just like Lady Folly who opens up her table to us, who actually leaves full? Who invites others back and is willing to share abundantly? The world talks much of what it gives, but how does it actually treat you? The world offers to you the promise of love, but in your experience, is it willing to actually give you its heart? Solomon's story today answers with the rhetorical no. What does it do? It provides the morsel, but withholds its own heart. It won't give it. It might show it, It might invite you in, but to think that it will ever give you its love will cause you to see that it will soon demand more from you. Just like Laban, it says, work for me some more, and then I promise you'll have Rachel. It calls you to more toil, more cost, more effort, more visits, more collateral, more sacrifice, more desire, more toil. And in the end, we will gluttonously answer every call for more and we will toil and we will spend and we will be exhausted and it will never give you its heart. All consuming and never giving is the heart of the host of this world. But Solomon wishes for us to see by contrast the hope of the host of heaven. Here is the ruler who says, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to them belong the kingdom of heaven. The host who says of himself, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He, Jesus, is the prophecy of the one we see, the experience of Isaiah 55. Consider this in light of your experience with the host of this world. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, for that which like a bird flees to heaven? And your labor, your toil for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, my sure love for David. Do you hear both the experience 
promised and the center of that promise, that here is the God who does not offer flippantly advertisements, which he hoped to simply rob your pocket, but here is the God who offers you a covenant of satisfaction in a painful way from the blood of his son, redeeming us and satisfying us. Jesus is the host who gives us his food, shares with us his heart, and seats us at his table. So how do you get there? You repent and you come to him. You use the discernment of the gospel to see the failings of the world and you come humbly to Christ, confessing that you have tasted things you ought not to have tasted, that you have desired things you ought not to have desired, but that Christ Jesus has fixed your problem of desire We're broken not because we can't find satisfaction in this world. We are broken because we're separated from God, which is the object of our satisfaction. We are broken in terms of our joy because we are separated from it by our sin. But in Jesus, he builds the bridge from despair to delight through his work on the cross. We are broken cisterns in a world that will constantly pour more on you. But Christ is the goblet of grace through his sacrifice on the cross. And so how does salvation by this king actually shape your desires? This is good. This is great. We're so happy that Jesus restored us to God. But what does it change in our lives with how we view our desires and our consumption patterns? There's a study that came out a number of years ago that tried to quantify of young adults and college students who had the healthiest relationships with social media and who had the worst. That is, who are those who are constantly on social media driven to wasting their time there to those who had more freedom and more healthy habits with their phone or with media? And they found that those who had the healthiest boundaries with social media were those who were in pre-law in pre-med studies. Their schedules were so filled with homework and with work that they barely had time to pursue these things. And it's not that those things weren't desirable to them, but it's that they saw something bigger worth living for. They saw something better that called them to give up for what they might gain. For them, that something greater was a high-level degree. For us as the church, the something greater we get to live for in all things is the joy of knowing Jesus and helping others know him as well. And what then makes, this then makes sense of all of the relationships we have with how we live and what satisfies. And Paul puts these things together in Ephesians chapter three when he says this, listen to his prayer and listen to the riches and the abundance and the love and the delight that he's praying for here in the church. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love, having the heart of the host may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, that is with the people of God, what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, 
according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. How do we apply this text of Proverbs 23 to our hearts in light of the gospel Paul presents in Ephesians chapter 3? We do more than simply hold a knife to our throats. But as the people of God, we come to also hold up the love of Christ to each other. The love that shines brighter than all the fool's gold of this world. Of a pain that is deeper than dissatisfaction in a job that is being damned because of our sin before a God we refused to delight in. That we are reminded of his wonderful plan for us to make known his love to those around us, to give our lives, to spend and be spent for things far more than we could ever imagine, to have our patterns for consumption consumed by a desire for God's glory. Our church gets to set a countercultural community who sits at the same table as our neighbors but views their food through a different lens and calls them to another feast, a feast which truly satisfies, calls them to the table they were built for, the table which will one day host the wedding supper of the Lamb. And so with desires satisfied in the heart of Christ, we in light of this text get to examine our hearts in relationship to the world. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your goodness and mercy. We pray that you help us see the failings of all of the promises of this world so that we might see the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. For it's only when we understand how you are faithful to us in saving our souls from hell and restoring us to you and giving us the promise of one day a world where everything we hope for is finally and forever here as we are living in your immediate presence. It's only in light of that reality that we can make sense of our joys in this world, joys which are meant to point us to the God who is better than all we experience and our brokenness in this world where we understand that sin so quickly robs us of joy and it is more capable of robbing us of our life were it not for Jesus Christ our host. So we pray, Lord, that our desires are different, that our spending habits distinct, that we would come and buy without price the bread freely given to us in Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen.